A little girl came home from Sunday school proudly waving this piece of paper to her mother and saying, Mommy, my teacher said I drew the most unusual picture of Christmas that she said she's ever seen. Mother took the picture from her little girl and looked at it for a moment and concluded, well, yeah, it was rather unusual. Looking at y'all, y'all might have heard this once before. She said, it's a nice picture, but why do you have people riding in a plane? The little girl said, it's a flight to Egypt. The little girl said, with a disappointed look on her face, well, then who is this mean-looking man, the mother said, in the front of the plane? And the little girl responded, kind of exasperated, it's Pontius, the pilot. <laughs> okay, the mother said. And, and I guess in this picture over here in the plane is Mary and Joseph. That must be the little baby. But 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 who is that fat man behind them? Her mother asked, and the little girl said, that's round John Burke. <laughs> yeah, you got to read to get these things. I mean, I, I thought that was cute. I chuckled, chuckled a lot. But uh, it illustrates, however, it, it does illustrate how muddled and confusing Christmas has gotten over the years. The world has already uh, mythologized, secular, secularized, and even romanticized. Go to the Hallmark Channel. Okay, uh, Christmas to where we can't even identify it for what it is anymore. Basically, and in the world has lost its meaning, has lost its significance altogether. Even in some Christian circles, right? Even in many Christian circles, the birth of Christ has been we could call downgraded, so to speak, downgraded into a nice story about a baby in a manger, a couple of wise men, and the little drummer boy. You know, you can see it everywhere. Instead of God who sovereignly sent his son to redeem sinners. So for that reason, what we're going to do for this Sunday and next is going to pause, uh, take a, our minds out of Ephesians and, and focus on the revisit and focus on the birth of Christ. This morning, we're going to look at it through the eyes of Isaiah. Okay. And then next week, we're going to look at the narrativity, the Luke and Matthew, probably both of them together. And I really want to really kind of focus on the glory of Christ. Uh, both this morning and next Sunday, not just the baby the manger, but the glory, the weight of who Christ really is. So uh, this morning we'll be looking at Isaiah. Speaking of Isaiah, go ahead and open your Bibles there this morning. Two verses in Bible. we'll be looking at a few others. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, and Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. Once you're very familiar with the prophecy of Messiah in chapter 7, in chapter 9 of Isaiah. And let's go ahead and stand together as you find that in your Bibles and we'll read it together. Chapter 7, verse 14, and chapter 9, verse 6. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. They go to chapter 9, verse 6. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us. And the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, he is the King of kings and Lord of lords. This is the creator. 
his son getting off his throne and taking on the form of a man because he wanted to deliver men, women, children from their sinfulness, without which we'd be in eternal damnation apart from Christ, apart from the incarnation. Israel would not have hope. The church would have no hope. There would be really no more existence of Israel. There would be no longer existence. There would be no church. We exist as a result of his glory. We exist as a result of his work and his power. And God, we want to spend the rest of our lives throughout eternity thanking you and praising you. So Lord God, this morning, as we revisit the birth of Christ, as we revisit Isaiah and the prophecy concerning Christ, God, would you expand our understanding to the significance of his birth and the ramifications and the scope, the magnitude of the birth of Christ. May we as a church see that it goes well beyond us and cause our hearts stirred to adore you, to worship you the way you call us and demand to be worshipped and adored. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. There's three points this morning. They're really simple. Number one is Isaiah's prophecy of Christ. Then number two is going to be the scope of his rule and his reign. And then the sacrifice of his life. Those are the three points this morning. So we're going to end up in Isaiah actually 53. It's just a long one to read, so I just stuck with the first two this morning. Well, let's begin with the prophecy of Christ. And I want to begin by developing the context because I, it's important for us to understand when this prophecy from Isaiah was given. What was the context in which he gave it? I think it's very important for us to understand this. He lived during the divided kingdom. He had Israel to the north, he had Judah to the south. God's kingdom, Israel, was divided into the northern and southern part. And they did not get along, by the way. Okay? The thrust of his message went to Judah, the southern kingdom. They had fallen into empty ritualism. So go back to chapter 1, a few verses to show you this. Chapter 1, verses 10 through 15. Let me read them. Hear the word of the Lord, Isaiah says. You rulers of Sodom. That's not a pretty picture. Give ear to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. Does that give you an idea of the spiritual condition of Israel during Isaiah's lifetime? Okay. What are your multiple sacrifices to me? Verse 11 says the Lord. It, they basically, their worship, it turned into empty spiritualism, empty ritualism. I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of the fed cattle. And I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs, or goats. You keep bringing the sacrifices, but I take no pleasure in them because it's just an empty religious exercise. You really don't love me. Verse 12, when you come to appear before me, who requires of you this trampling of my courts? Bring your worthless offerings no more. Basically, stop it. Don't even come. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath, the calling of the assemblies, I cannot endure iniquity and the solemn assembly. Oh, they're very solemn. You know, outward, they, were, they looked like they were truly, genuinely worshipped, and they, they were quiet and very respectful. But on the inside, their hearts were so far away from their God. Verse 14, I hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts. They become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. So when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. 
Yes, even though you multiply your prayers, even though you increase your prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. Wow, what an indictment of God on his own people, Israel. So that is really the spiritual condition in which we have Isaiah's prophecy of the Messiah. Basically, chapters 1 through 6 are full of this indictment. And I just read a little portion of this. And then you get to chapter 7, and I want you to understand there's a historical situation going on in chapter 7. In verses 1 through 17, excuse me, verses 1 through 9, is talking about the northern king of Israel, the northern tribe, allied with a secular nation around them, close to them, in order to war against the southern tribe and to attack Jerusalem. Jerusalem was the capital in the southern of Judah, okay? And they were warned. They did not get along. So here you have this spiritual condition. You have this historical setting. And not only that, the nations around them were, were just so rebellious that even in Isaiah, through many of the chapters, like chapter 17 through 20 or 14 through 21, he pronounces oracles against the surrounding nations as well. So God's fed up with Israel. He's fed up with the northern tribe. He's fed up with the southern tribe. He's fed up with the nations all around him. This is the context in which Isaiah was called to preach. In chapters 14 through 21, he pronounces oracles against nations such as Assyria, Philistia, Moab, Egypt, and Babylon. All these surrounding countries. So all the nations had basically rebelled against God, even his own. If you want to back up to Isaiah chapter 6, I want to look at his call for a moment as we develop this context, this poor prophet, so to speak. You're familiar with chapter 6, where Isaiah goes into the Holy of Holies. He's in the throne room of God and sees the cherubim, right? And the glory of God is overwhelming him. To the point in verse 5 of chapter 6, Isaiah says, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I'm a man of unclean lips. When you're before the Holy of Holies, when you're before God and His glory, He is the light. And what does it do? It exposes any and all darkness. And Isaiah realized, I am just a sinful man. And that's why he says, Woe is me. Isaiah's recognition of his own sinfulness and in what he deserved before a holy God. His condemnation, woe is me, judgment upon me. Why? The end of verse 5, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning, burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. There's the picture of mercy. God grants mercy to repentant sinners. When a sinner says, woe is me, it means he sees himself the way God sees him, and he desires to repent and turn. But I want to really focus on verse 8. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send, and who will go forth for us? Who am I going to send, God says. Who's going to go forth and proclaim my glory? Notice what Isaiah said in verse 8. I said, here am I, send me. <laughs> I'm excited. God is holy. I've been touched by him. I'll minister for you. I'll do it. I'll proclaim your greatness. Oh, God, let me go. Verse 9. 
don't think they had a clue what he was getting into. Verse 9, he said, go and tell this people, keep on listening, but do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. Render the hearts of these, he's describing those he'd be ministering to. That's what he's doing here. God is saying, okay, you're going to go for me, but I want you to tell you your audience. This is what they're going to be like. This is them. They're going to listen, but they're not going to understand. They're going to be insensitive in their hearts, their ears dull, their eyes dim. And then verse 11, Isaiah said, Lord, how long are they going to be this way? How long are they going to be this way? Until the cities are devastated without inhabitant, houses are without people, and the land is utterly desolate, and the Lord has removed men far away. In other words, your whole lifetime. This is going to be your ministry. You see, when you proclaim the word of God, when you minister the word of God, it's not based upon what, how people will respond, but God's call in your life. You see that? And for many prophets, for many pastors, it's a lifetime of hurt and heartache because there will be times when people won't listen. So Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, that was the ministry of these great prophets, these great men. But this is the context in which we are given chapter 7, verse 14, and 9, verse 6. This is the context in which we are given the prophecy of the birth of Jesus Christ. Let's turn there. Chapter 7, verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. He will give you a sign. He will, he will announce. He will give you the birth of a son from a virgin. A woman who had never been sexually intimate. But the key to understanding this, of how this can happen, and, and who comes in the last part of verse 14, he'll bear a son, and here it is, and she will call his name Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. That's the who, and that's also the answer to how this can happen. Because he's Emmanuel, God with us. In other words, this baby who is to be born would be God himself in human form. The infinite, all-powerful, sovereign creator of the heavens and earth would come to visit his corrupt creation. He would come as a teenager. He didn't come as a 21-year-old. He came as a baby. You know, his life began and ended just like yours. Began from a mother's womb and death. Think about that for a minute. Think about that for a minute. That means he's experienced all the human experiences that you experienced. All the temptations, the, 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 the pain of loss, and he experienced the fury of temptation just like you, from baby to death. That's why there's Hebrews chapter 4, that he sympathizes with your weaknesses, that he is the great high priest, and every time you come to him in pain and heartache and in hurt, he's there on the throne saying, I understand. I understand, I know, I know, I know. Jesus Christ is never aloof from your problems. He dealt everything with you. Hurt like we hurt, wept like we have wept. It's so important to grasp. That's why it's called the throne of grace. Why is it called the throne of grace? Because of the incarnation. Because he was born. But the prophecy of Isaiah is not in there. A little further on in chapter 9, verse 6, Isaiah writes, A child will be born. Look at that verse 6. For a child will be born to us. 
This is in reference to his humanity. The child is born. That's his humanity. Like any other human being, he began as an infant. And then notice also what he says next. A son will be given to us. That's in reference to his deity. So he is fully man and fully God. God gave his son. And he gave him by sending him to earth to take on the form of a man, a bondservant. And experience life even unto what? Death. But then I want to take this a little bit further. And I want you to look at the, the very next phrase. And the government will rest on his shoulders. Stop right there. Usually we take, when we think about the birth of Christ, we think of the incarnation, what do we think about? Jesus came and died for me. Correct. But that is not all. And so I'm getting into point two of this. When Isaiah prophesied the incarnation, the birth of Christ, his application was not the church. His application was Israel. He's thinking about what Revelation chapter 20 talks about, the millennium. That's his application here. And so I'm thinking, God, the scope of the ministry of Jesus Christ goes beyond the church and into the millennium. Everything. The church, the rapture, the tribulation, the thousand year millennial reign of Christ, all that goes back to the incarnation, the birth of Christ. All of that is dependent upon him coming as a human being. All of it. So the scope of his ministry is a lot bigger and a lot grander than we normally think. And the government will rest on his shoulders. Isaiah looks beyond Christ's birth and he, he kind of hop skips over the church and looks to the millennial reign and makes the statement and the government will rest on his shoulders. Zechariah 14, 9 says, And the Lord will be king over all the earth. In that day the Lord will be the only one, and his name the only one, that will rule and that will reign. And he will do it from Jerusalem. On that day the government, during the millennium, the government, the whole world, will rest on his shoulders. No one else's, his alone. There will be no need for United Nations. Do you hear that? That's man's attempt to get peace in the world. It utterly fails. But when Christ comes again, it will not just be the rapture of the church and to get them to be with him, but it will be to set up his own kingdom. Do you see that picture? That is in our future. Your future. Not just Israel's, but the church's future. As we We'll, we'll, we'll from on high see all this unfold before our very eyes. Thus the word of God being fulfilled. Every dot, I mean every eye being dotted, excuse me, every T crossed. Which tells us we can depend on God's word. And if God fulfilled the first coming of Christ, and all the prophecies in relationship to the first coming of Christ, you better believe He's going to fulfill literally all the prophecies concerning the second coming of Christ, including the setting up of his earthly kingdom. As a matter of fact, he goes on to describe this rule. And he uses words like wonderful counselor, mighty God, eternal father, prince of peace. 
wonderful counselor. His subjects go to him for truth. You see, here's the difference between the church and Christ ruling from one difference. And Christ ruling the world through Jerusalem. Today in the church, his rule, his reign is internally in our hearts. But during his earthly millennial reign, it's going to be also external. External. From Jerusalem, he's going to rule and reign. And so when you read, he's a wonderful counselor. To us, he's our wonderful counselor. But in the millennial reign, he's going to also be the wonderful counselor for all the nations. Who will be subject to his authority and his rule and his reign. Because he is the source of truth. The world is full of confusion. But Christ is the truth. So I says, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. You can't go over to the Father going on around me, under me, on top of me. you got to go through me. Think about when he was on earth. He always knew what to say, when to reach out, when to rebuke. Even the folks during his day, the, the Israelites, the, the Jews, they, they marveled at his teaching. And they would even say, what kind of teaching is this? He teaches with authority. Our scribes, our, our chief priests, no one teaches this way. He came and they noticed a difference. Mighty God, he rules and reigns so there is no chaos. He is all-powerful, so nothing is out of order in his kingdom. This means he's not only wise, he has power to carry out his wisdom. He's mighty God. There will be no nation-going rogue in his kingdom. Here's another characteristic, eternal father. He needs no support. He is the creator of heaven and earth. He's equated here with the father. Just like the father, he's one. Nothing is too difficult for him. He sustains life. He's the Alpha and Omega. He's the beginning and the end. Isaiah 48 10 says he declares the end from the beginning. He declared what the beginning would be and when the end would be, and everything in between. This is our Christ, folks. This is the Lord of the church. This is the Lord of our lives. The same Lord described in Isaiah, the same Lord described in the millennium is the same Lord of our lives. That's why he's the Prince of Peace, no conflicts. He makes peace with God for those who surrender to him in faith today, and he will be the one that makes peace in the millennial reign. Turn with me for a moment to Revelation chapter 20. Just go there for a second. Verses 1 through 3, and then verse 7, 8, 9 in there. Revelation chapter 20. And I'm doing this because Isaiah is envisioning this. And, and we're told by John, book of Revelation, a little bit more of this millennial reign. Then I saw an angel, verse 1 of Revelation 20, coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss and the great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil, and Satan. And bound him for what? A thousand years. Christ has come. He's got his church. Now he's setting up his kingdom. And right before he sets it up, he's binding Satan. He's in jail. And he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. Go to verse 7. When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison. So he was bound for a thousand years, but Jesus one more time is going to release him. Notice who's in control this whole time. 
Who's in control this whole time? Christ. Who's in control of your eternal destiny right now at this moment? It is Christ. If he's taking care of your sin, sin no longer is master over you. If he is taking care of your sin, Satan does not have the influence he once had over you. And you will be released from prison. Verse 8, and will come out to deceive the nations. This is what Christ is allowing. He's orchestrating. Let's say this. He is orchestrating this last attempt on Satan's part to deceive and drag down anybody and everybody he can. And he's going to do it in his last day, in the last of the end of the millennium. He's going to do it at a nationwide scale. Nations which are in the four corners of the earth, God and Magog, to gather them together for the, the war. Notice it doesn't say a war. It's the war. The last and final battle. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. They came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints. They surrounded the saints in the beloved city. What city do you think that is? Jerusalem, folks. And a fire came down from heaven and devoured them. They surrounded. Verse 10. We can simply say it's it. It's over. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone. That was it. That was his last gasp, so to speak. Orchestrated by God. Jesus is the one that threw him in the jail. A thousand years later, he released him for this last and final event, this last and final battle, this last and final war. The lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are also. Him and all his minions. Him and his cohorts, him and, him and those who helped him, they're all in the lake of fire forever. Eternal destruction, eternal hell, eternal flames, eternal death. Yeah. They would be tormented day and night forever and ever. There is no reason in this context to take it figuratively whatsoever. There's other portions of scripture that back this up in the same language to be taken literally. And then we have the great white throne judgment. And then the new heaven and the new earth. But beloved, through this, where are we? Where's the church? It's with Christ. We're with Christ. Think about it for a minute. You did not expect to come this morning to hear a Christmas sermon that also involved the millennium. Did you? You see, when Isaiah prophesied the birth of Christ, that's what he thought about. That's why when Jesus came in his first coming, the Jews expected him to what? Set up his kingdom. But God said, no, I got another part of my plan here. I got a church, I got a bride that I have predetermined to gather together for me. And once I'm done with that, then I'll deal with you again, Israel, as a nation. So church, we're told this. So we shall not ignore it, right? It says this, God has this greater, master, huger, enormous plan that it goes well beyond just us. Because Christ is going to come again and he's going to restore that nation. The one he's going to put on the shelf right now. And he's going to fulfill all of his promises that he's told us in the Old Testament concerning that nation just as he's going to fulfill the promises of the church. That we foresee also in the Old Testament. Turn back now to Isaiah chapter 11. I want to show you something here. Still talking about the millennium, and we'll wrap this up and get to the third point. 
Go back to Isaiah chapter 11. If you're familiar with the first verse or two, the language here, it says that a shoot will spring up from the stem of Jesse. Who is that? The Christ, right? The lineage. We also read this language in, in Luke, in, in, in narrative in the, in the Gospels, when it comes to the birth of Christ. And the branch from his roots will bear fruit. The fruit of what? Apples and oranges? No. Salvation, right? But then from that point on, notice what Isaiah does here. He's describing the millennium period. Verse 2, the Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding. Very similar to the, the language of chapter 9, verse 6. And he will delight, verse 3, and he will delight to fear the Lord. And he will not judge by what his eyes see, nor make a decision by what his ears hear. Well, then how is he going to judge? Verse 4, but with righteousness he will judge the poor, and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. This is describing how he is going to rule and reign during the millennium, what it's going to be like. But with righteousness he will judge the poor. Verse four, uh, chapter uh, verse four still, and he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. He will discipline those who get out of line, and that's the Hebrew word for rod. There, he will rebuke them. Right? It's not like the millennial will be perfect, but it'll be a whole lot better than it is today because of his rule and his reign. Verse five also righteousness will be the belt about his loins, and faithfulness the belt about his waist. Verse six. And the wolf will dwell with the lamb. Even the animals will get along during the millennium. Right? And the leopard will lie down with the young goat and the calf. What do you think is going to happen when the king of kings, the Lord of lords, sets up his rule and reign on Jerusalem for that thousand years? Where he's describing what it's going to be like. Isn't that incredible? That's the power of Christ. Can anybody do that today? Has anybody ever done that? Have you ever seen this unfold? In, maybe having little poppies, these little pictures of one animal like a cat and a dog together, but but on a worldwide scale, of course not. Verse 8, the nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra. What mother would allow their child to sit there and play with some little building blocks next to where a cobra is at? Of course not. Verse 9, they will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord. You better believe it. When Jesus Christ rules and reigns from Jerusalem, the whole world will know. As the waters cover the sea. That brings me to the third point this morning, and that's the sacrifice of his life. Because we've got to ask the question, by what authority can he do all these things? Right? How do you know who's the ones going to be able to do all this in the millennium? How do we know? How do we know this person has the power and authority to do these things we just read in Isaiah chapter 11, much less Revelation 20? Who in the world has the power and the authority to lock Satan up in jail, to loose him again, and to cast him in the lake of fire? Who in the world has this authority, but none other than God himself? That's Emmanuel, God with us. In other words, before Christ built his church, before Christ comes 
or in the sky to rapture his church. Before Christ comes at the end of the great tribulation and to set up his kingdom, before the thousand year millennial reign, Christ did something. What he did was to prove that he could do all those things. What did he do? He died, was buried, and rose again. That's why he did that first, was to show us that he alone is God, that he alone has the power to do all that he said he would do, from the building of his church to his reign on earth, from Jerusalem over the whole world, to the casting of Satan into the lake of fire. Christ alone, Christ alone, he's the Lord of our lives. He is the Lord of the church. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah chapter 53. I love this. Notice how it starts out with a question. He's begging the question. Isaiah again, who has believed our message? Now, wait a minute. Who has believed his message? Nobody. We read that in chapter 1. This is his message. But no one's listening. They're dull. They don't want to hear anymore. And he's describing his own people that way. Not just the nations around Jerusalem. Not just the nations around the northern southern tribe. But themselves, his own people. They don't want to hear anymore. They're, they were dull. And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot, or like a root out of parched ground. And now he begins to describe Jesus in, in his first coming, the incarnation, God with us, and what he would be like and why he came. When he came as a man, he didn't come in a special way. He was born just like you and me. From a womb of a mother. Now, the conception was miraculous, but the birth was normal. Are you with me there? The conception was miraculous. Wrought with the Holy Spirit. It was supernatural. There was no man involved in that. But this birth was normal. But he, when he grew up, he wasn't this wonderful, beautiful kind of guy. It's kind of average. That's what we read here. He had no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. Let's go further. He was despised and forsaken of men. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Why do you think that is? Because no one believed him. Right? That's why they killed him. They laughed at him. They mocked him. They scorned him. Even above the cross, king of the Jews. That was mockery. They weren't serious about that. It was sarcasm. He was despised and we did not esteem him. We didn't consider him. We didn't consider his work. We did not consider his value. But meanwhile, surely our griefs he himself bore. And our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him cursed of God. The people of that day when Christ was hanging on the cross, considered him to be cursed of God. How ironic is that? When it was the ones that were watching that whole scene unfold, they were the ones cursed of God. But on the other hand, he was cursed of God because it was our sins that he bore. 
You see that? Smitten of God and afflicted. Verse 5, but he was pierced through for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. In other words, this baby came to what? Die. This is not about a little baby cuddly in a manger. It's not about the three wise men. It's not about the cool drummer boy. It's not about those things. It's not about romanticism, right? It's, it's not about mysticism. It's not about those things. It's about God, the creator of us, the creator of this universe and everything we see from the oceans to the mountaintops and everything between the stars and the skies and the galaxies. He, the one who created all that, sent his son to come to this earth to be like one of us, to deliver us from our sin. That's the story of Christmas. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. He did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shears. He did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living? Verse 9, his grave was assigned with wicked men. Yet he was with a rich man in his death. There was no deceit found in his mouth. Now look at verse 10. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief, if he would render himself as a guilt offering. Now listen to this. He will see his offspring. He will prolong his days. His death will produce fruit. Offspring. Followers of Christ. It's called the church. We are the result of his death all those years ago. The death of the sovereign still has effect in 2017 and December 17. Isn't that awesome? And the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. We look at the world today. We hear the news. And it's a mess. We are, we're, there's no spiritual prospering. It's just a mess. But on this day, at this hour, regardless of the historical situation, regardless of what we hear in the news, Christ is prospering because he's sovereign. He is calling people unto himself, and they are coming. And the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. What do we learn from this? There's a couple of things. Let me just end with these kind of lessons so we can learn from this. First of all, God who created all things had planned. And that plan far reaches beyond the church. The scope of Christ's ministry is beyond the church. He has planned the end from the beginning. It is all-encompassing. He has a plan for his chosen. He has a plan for the unbeliever. He has a plan for Satan and his demons. He has a plan for Israel. He has a plan for the nations. Most importantly, he his plan revolves around the incarnation. You see that? Everything goes back to that. God with us. Because Christ is God's fulfillment to his plan for the ages. And the church is one aspect of that. His plan revolves around the incarnation. God in the flesh, Emmanuel, God with us. His name is Jesus Christ. He is the glory of God. Everything goes through him, so to speak. Does that make sense? 
He's the all-glorious Christ. He is so weighty with his glory, there's not a scale that can handle him. That's why every time in both the Old and New Testament, when a saint would go before the presence of God, they would John, I felt as a dead man. Isaiah the same way. Moses the same way. His glory is that weighty. That's why an unbeliever cannot handle it. Nor Satan, nor any of his minions. But only those who have been born again. Number two, his plan is twofold. It involves the church and Israel. We see that. It's not just about us. Therefore, both the church and Israel depend upon the incarnation. It is Christ who builds his church, and it will be Christ who will rule the world from Jerusalem as King of kings and Lord of lords. Isaiah says it. Zechariah says it. We're told that in Revelation and other books as well. Number three, just as Christ literally fulfills the prophecy of his first coming, he will likewise fulfill literally the prophecies of his second coming in the millennium to come. Four, what does this mean for us right now? Beloved, it means this. There is no excuse for us not to trust every word of this book and to protect it. Take nothing away and don't have anything to it. We should go to great lengths. We should be, we should strain ourselves in protecting the truths of God's word. And not just knowledge. How about walking in it? What want to do it is Jesus be doers of the word. Because of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. I want to remind us all in closing what Isaiah says in chapter 55. If you'd like to turn there, I'm going to read it. Verse 10 and 11. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return there without watering the earth, and making it bare and sprout, and furnishing seed to the sower, and bread to the eater, so my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, without accomplishing what I desire, without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. Did you get that? So every time you have a quiet time, every time you come to church, every time you might be sitting on your sofa or in a chair or something at home and reading God's word, remember, it's alive, it's all-powerful, and God's going to keep every sentence, every word that you're reading. There's no book like this. No book like this. Devour it. Eat it. Study it. Enjoy it. It's God's love letter to his children. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, thank you for this time together. Thank you for your goodness and your grace and your loving kindness. Thank you, dear God, when we read about the prophecies in your book. There are prophecies that you have fulfilled, and yet there are prophecies that you will fulfill beyond the church in the future. But all those prophecies revolve around the incarnation, the coming of Christ. You sending your son to take on the form of a man and be the bondservant and living that perfect, holy, righteous life. And providing for us the righteousness we need, that we must have to be in your presence. And that God, that's why you rose him from the dead. And so when we read, oh God, that he is going to reign for a thousand years, 
He's already accomplished the harder task of conquering sin, death, and Satan. When we read that he is going to cast Satan into jail, and then he's going to loose him for a season and cast him into eternal lake of fire is because he's already shown that he's done the harder part and conquered sin, death, and Satan himself. So God, thank you that you give us and show us the power of Christ before he accomplishes all these other things. So we can trust you at your word and praise you now without having any doubt or any question that you are in control, you have a plan, and you fulfill it. And no one can get in the way. And no one will indeed. Father, that's why we're so secure in Christ. That's why we're so secure. No one can pluck us from your hands. Nobody can. We are safe in your arms. Regardless of what we've gone through this week, regardless of what we feel at times, regardless of what we think about ourselves at times, regardless of what we hear on the news, we're yours. We're secure in Christ. We've been bought with the precious blood of Jesus. So God, give us the grace. Give us the love to walk in that. To walk in who we are in Christ. And all God's people said, Amen. God bless you. Merry Christmas.